Hey, family, today's guest is Benita Fortner. I love this lady so, so much, and I know you will as well. Benita's going to be sharing with us freely, as is the only way she will share. And she's been a friend of mine for many, many years. While I met her professionally through supplier diversity work she did at that time, over the time, Benita and I have become very close personal friends. Um, I refer to her as my sister from my heart and from my head. And you're soon going to find out why. But before we talk with Benita, let me just share with you what she says about herself and what others say. Basically, Benita says she doesn't think she's done that much when she looks at other people. Well, that's the humility side of her. I know she's done a lot. Think about this. Benita is the recently retired director of supplier diversity for Raytheon Company. There she concluded 47 year career in the aerospace and defense industry, a 47 year career. You're not going to believe it when you see her, okay? During her career, Benita served on so many government and industry councils, boards, and she even chaired the National Med Week Planning Committee from 2002 to 2004. Benita was named Chair Emeritus in 2005, and then she passed uh, her career forward to become the Chair of the National Minority Supplier Development Council. Uh, she did chairperson work there for the committee, and she worked on Webink's Women Business Enterprise National Council's Board of Directors, where I had the joy of working with her again. She's received a myriad of awards and recognition that include the Clarion Award from the National Minority Supplier uh, Development Council. She had an induction into the WBE Hall of Fame and the Bill Alcorn Award from Weeping. Now, if you know anything about these organizations and about business, you're already wild. But let me just tell you, Benita holds a Bachelor of Science degree in law and a Jewish doctor degree from Golden West University, and she completed Raytheon's business leadership program. Doing all of that as a mother, doing all of that as a civic-minded citizen, and as a friend to so many, of which I am very honored to count myself. Let's get talking with my dear friend, Benita Fortner. Joining us right now is one of America's most successful female entrepreneurs. Special guest speaker today, the first African-American woman to own a billion dollar company. Her name is Janice Bryant Howroyd. She's the founder and CEO of Act One is one of the largest staffing companies in the United States. She's now ranked by Forbes as second wealthiest self-made African-American woman in America behind only Ms. Oprah Winfrey. And she spent almost 40 years helping others find work. Janice, great to have you on the show. Wonderful to be Thank here. Thank you so much Wonderful. for joining us. Hey, Benita. Hi, Angel. How are you? Nice to see you. Oh, girl, I am doing well and so much better. As I always say, every time I see you. It is so great to be able to connect with you right now. Um, Benita, you know, before we get into our conversation, I really want people to know why I admire and candidly speaking, love you so much. Um, let's talk about little Benita growing up. Give us a little bit of your history. How did you get to be this incredible person? Oh, geez. Well, little Benita growing up was 
very much not the person Benita is today, a middle child. The thing that does last today is a middle child that just really did not like conflict. The middle child in a family of six. My father owned his own business. I worked in his business every day after school from about the sixth or seventh grade on through graduation. So business world, the business world is not a new place for me. And working with people that are much older than me was never a new thing for me. I always understood respecting elders, but I learned um, leadership and responsibility as a young person, being very responsible for my father's business as he left us there many, many, many times alone without him or my mother there. So that part probably fueled where I got a lot of my thinking and um, maybe even personal security in the space as I got older. And, um, you know, my son, I, I, my son, uh, I had my child at a very early age and went to work and to school and graduated from law school um, while I was working an eight hour job. So I have a tremendous affinity for understanding the many different paths to success for people. It is, there's not just one way. One of the things I like to tell young people is don't be concerned if you don't know what you're going to do when you first graduate or even, you know, when you've been in college, because there are so many paths to get to your personal success in life. And I certainly took a very securitous route <laughs> to where I ultimately ended up. I went to law school and graduated from law school, but by the time I graduated, I was very successful from a leadership standpoint at uh, Hughes slash Raytheon. And um, it didn't make any sense for me to jump and go to practice law because an entry level attorney would have been significantly less um, than, my, was, than what I was making. And then ultimately I found supplier diversity. I was in contracts and supply chain and had a tremendous background in contracts administration, supply chain administration, purchasing, ran a number of purchasing departments and fell in love when I found supplier diversity. And then the rest is history because that's where we met and that's where I ended my career in that space um, with supplier diversity. What type of business did your dad have, Benita? My father owned what started out uh, in the 50s as a um, record store that ultimately changed and emerged into a record television appliance store. I'm not sure uh, some people may remember back in the 60s, particularly around the, the, the Watts riot, he owned a store in the Rosecrans Plaza shopping center, which was in Compton. He happened to be the president of the Merchants Association when that happened and um, very devastating to his business. His business did not last much longer after that, but he sold records, televisions, appliances, very, I don't know if you remember back in the day when televisions used to be big, giant home entertainment centers, big, big wood structures, you know, with a television and a turntable. And um, he sold those kinds of things. And I was uh, in that space. And, um, and, and the thing about that that is very different is it was um, the consumer space. I was a very young person waiting on a general public and having to be very secure as a young person and having to be able to respect older people. But that was a very tense and tough business, um, the record business, 
late at night customers, that kind of thing. So I got a really fast and quick and very good education at an early age. When you talk about working in your dad's record business, although it was a much smaller business that I referred to, there's a movie out right now that's getting a lot of acclaim. And the star of that movie works in her dad's business. Um, I think so much that you shared in just these few minutes about growing up in your dad's company really fuels me uh, to, to uh, have you talk about, but there's one thing in particular, and that is your mom and dad left you alone in that store to work in that store. There is so much in that conversation itself that is teaching not just about the ability to interact and to um, and to be thoughtful and listening to people around their needs, but also the security it took for you to be able to speak. And let's talk about it. You were selling technology. It was the latest of technology in that moment. That's absolutely true because uh, I did have siblings and we were there and, and there were some times as we got a little older, there were times where we actually had to go and open the store up. Now, the other employees that my father had, they would come to the store and again, they were much older, but we had to open up the stores. But when you talk about technology, the fascinating part for me, which, which, which is what made the Hughes and the Raytheon space so fascinating for me, was it was the technology, the vinyl going to cassettes, you know, going to four track, eight track, um, then going to cassettes, then going to things like, you know, the, the CDs. And so watching all of that, more importantly, the VCR back in the day, you know, when beta, as a matter of fact, most many people don't know that beta had always been the more sophisticated technology for videoing. Mm -hmm. And even in the industry now, beta is still used a lot in the technical, very highly technical side. It earned it, its right as, as when we say we beta test something. Right, exactly. The VHS side, which was the more uh, easily accessible and the one that took over, you know, was just, uh, was a very good platform, but beta had always been the more sophisticated platform. And I think that is a reason that I acclimated so much to the Hughes Aircraft Company space because it was all about technology. And I felt very comfortable and secure in that space around people that were creating technology. Yeah, and you know, you talk about it being old school. I have to tell you, when I go to my daughter's home, we listen to vinyl today. My attic is filled with vinyl. Now, I remember my brother-in-law, Tom Noonan, who was in the music industry. Uh, Tommy worked at Billboard and was one of the executives who helped Barry Gordy move Motown to LA uh, from Detroit. But I remember him telling me, you know, you want to keep those albums. And if you don't keep the albums, at least keep the sleeves keep the because the art was going to be worth it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's unfortunate how much, uh, you know, we lost as a family with regard to vinyl. But the thing about it is it also helped me uh, become very eclectic. Uh, although my father's music business was uh, originally, he had one in Watts, he had one in Long Beach. And then the final one was in Compton. But not only hearing music first when it first came out, because a lot of demos and, you know, I heard side B of everything. So I would always listen to side B of everything. And my taste in music grew 
because I exposed myself to so much music that wasn't the mainstream, what was being played on the radio all the time. And for that, I'm very thankful because I have a just an absolute appetite for all kinds of music. There are only one or two music genres that I'm not particularly fond of. And you studied who those artists were as well, their histories and what got them to that music. Absolutely. One of the other benefits of being in that business was um, a service called a mutual ticket agency. And so we had an opportunity to sell tickets to all these venues, the concerts and everything. And uh, so therefore I got a chance to go to theater and go to the concerts at an, at an early age because the access was right there. We were one of the providers in, the, in those days of the tickets. And so you got a chance to see where artists were performing and who they were, read their backgrounds. And then that made you interested in their stories. And then, we, and then I was a person that always wanted to know as much as I could about everything and everybody. And so I would always try to find the backstory. Yeah, and you talk about going to theater. Perhaps that allows us to transition a little bit because very often many of my uh, young followers are not aware that going into business is very similar to going into theater. There is a theater to any business and to most industries, I yes. think. Can yes. you help us a little bit with breaking that down so they understand what that means? I will start off with maybe what is a little tougher terminology because as you know, my uh, life was in the aerospace and defense business, which was a little tough for a, a lot of females, a lot of women early on, not, not later, but early on, it was a tough environment because of the kinds of things that we made working with the government and the defense side. And so I'll start off with theater in that space because theater is a terminology that was used oftentimes in that field. And theater was, you know, a phraseology used for where the action was going to take place and that's weapons and everything else that was going on. And so that's a very graphic reference to theater outside. Like of, in the medical industry, the theater is the operating, the operating room. room and where that where the action is going to take place. And so when you look at business and, and who you are, whatever business you're in, you are always required to be at the top of your performance, whatever that field is. And theater is a great way to look at when you're moving from your everyday, day-to-day, get-up world, and, and now you're on. What does on mean? What does it mean for you to be on, on your game, you know, at your best, at the top of your thinking, ready to uh, deal and interact with whomever you encounter? That's on, that's theater, that's the place that you do your thing, your business. And, you know, I think it's really important, Benita, as well, for a lot of young people who are prepared to do the work to get where they want to go, to understand that no matter where you go to work, it's critical you understand where that business considers its theater to be and where that industry considers its theater to be. A business can be contributing to as you reference, Hughes contributes to the security of the world, right? The mobility of the world. But in a company or in a department, you need to know where the real theater is and determine for yourself how you get in that theater or how you're supporting that theater gets you to elsewhere you want to go. Yeah, 
I like the way you make that reference because that is a place that gets lost very often. So there's always the, you know, I like to think of a, of a circus and not to make fun of it, but to think of a circus, there are a lot of things going on all the time. And there's a center stage and a lot of attention is there, but there are other things going on in the background and they're equally important. And when you look at business, whatever business one is in, whatever industry a person enters into, there's always the other things going on. Everything needs a supporting cast. And so if you are in the supporting cast role versus the star in front of the camera, your theater is someplace else, but it's still theater for you. You have to be on. If you don't do something well, if you don't do it on time, if you don't do it the best, then it's going to show up with those in front of the camera. And that's the way, you know, I like young people to think about their role and their importance and how, um, they choose the space they want to occupy because if you can't embrace it and you can't make it your own and you can't make it and it's not the most important thing for you when you're doing that thing, then it's probably not a good decision because complacency may slip in. And, you know, if you are a business owner or if you are an executive and you're interacting with other companies as part of your uh, delivery, I think it's really important for everybody, especially these people, to understand that within the theater of your own life, there are many actors and they're all critical to how you get to where you want to go. I'll give you an example that I know you can uh, relate to. You know, in our world, you're in my world, very often we were going into these big buildings, these enterprises, and to, we'll see what happens after COVID if people rush back to that, uh, to that platform. But we walk into buildings from heat, from snow, from wherever we were. And the first person we'd encounter would be a receptionist in a, in a hallway or at a station. And I can't tell you, as I'm sure you've seen, how many times I've seen people be disrespectful to that person. Right. Yet, I have, I can say every time I've ever encountered a reception person, and I've got a lot of years and a lot of buildings uh, under my belt, um, just being kind, being thoughtful. If you're seeing a person for the second time, remembering their name, uh, back in the day, it could even be a hot coffee or a cold drink. You know, I know you're stationed here, you're seeing a lot of people. Um, the entree to people and information that they have is huge. And while you do it for the kindness, very often they make sure you get to where you need to go or they give you that little added uh, direction right. that helps you to, or, or they let you know that person had a rough meeting that day. You know, things that help to keep the theater moving toward the great outcome you want. And I think that's important for people to uh, to know. And I know you talked about that a lot when you were heading supplier diversity conferences and you um, give keynotes, you always included the importance of understanding that everybody's important right. in your rise. Right, I, you bring, you, you connect to the bridge where I ended my career with supplier diversity, and then the, the, the bigger capital D in diversity and inclusion, which was 
the entire you know workforce diversity, which is, as you know, workforce diversity and inclusion, cultural competency, that became my real passion before I, I left that space. And so what you just mentioned bridges to that from a standpoint, something that is vastly missing today in a greater part of our society is just the general respect um, and consideration for first another human being. So it doesn't matter if that human being is sitting uh, at a desk in a big giant foyer as you enter a building, or even if that human being is the person that is um, sweeping the floor and moving the trash as you walk in to make sure that things are very presentable or cleaning the windows. This idea that people are important and every single human being deserves respect and consideration, that is tantamount to our success. How you treat other people is a reflection of oneself. And how you treat other people really doesn't have the ability to, you don't have the ability to just shut that off and then be respectful and considerate when you go to the person that you think you're trying to influence. Some of that lack of consideration, some of that lack of respect always spills over. You know, the old saying that they used to say, you know, behave as though your mother is watching you or behave as though you're on CNN, the old, the old saying, you know, that's very true, but it's more than just behave. It's, it's more own that feeling own the feeling of wanting to make sure that everyone you encounter feels valued. When you bring that to the table, it comes back to you exponentially because people do business with people they like. People do business with people they're comfortable with. And that's when you bring that energy to the table, that's what someone that you're trying to do business with can relate to and will relate to. Maybe not successfully the first or second time, but they will hold you in a place of esteem and circle back to you when that opportunity presents itself. And in a tweet and Instagram world, Benita, people are in such a hurry to make an impact or to get to where they want to go and, um, and focusing on how many people are listening to or following them that they forget what you're teaching us. There's one thing about behavior. There's also a thing about behaving. Behave in a way that allows you to truly speak to uh, who you are. Be having the demeanor, be having the interest, be having the generosity of spirit that you want others to share with you. Um, I've learned so much from you over these years. I want you to talk about that other D word a little bit because you and I have often had conversations around deserving what human beings deserve, also what a person deserves. And from time to time, I've seen you talk about it in a way that throws up uh, people's heads back when you're like, wait a minute, be very clear. There are some things you do, do deserve as a human being. There are other things you may not have earned and don't deserve as right. an individual. Right. So yeah. I really want you to share that because I've seen you audience after audience put people's mouths wide open. Yeah, I think, you know, if we want to resurrect some of my less popular times. <laughs> <laughs> When I entered the space of supplier diversity, I saw it as um, 
one, the government side, and as we all know, the government side, which was a lot of people think the compliance side, you have to do this. There was an element to that. Um, the commercial side, there's a, there's a marketing element to that. I'm not saying one side is better than the other. There's, there are different sides. But I encountered such a attitude of entitlement from so many people constantly. And I wanted, because I grew up in a business and I knew what it was like, you know, you talked about that movie that was about that, that business. The person that was the subject of that movie that's out and very popular now was a friend of my father's. He knew them very well. We knew them very well. We were all in that same space. I was so hoping my, to get you to talk about that, but. And, and, and my father's very smaller business was no competition for, you know, that big business even though it was an African-American owned business. And then the other larger businesses that were much more competitors. And my father had to operate in his niche space. And we understood that. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were times when people would come into the store and ask for something we didn't have. We would send them to that other place, try them. They probably have it. They have a, a lot more inventory than us, a lot more stock than us. That takes me to the entitlement. Um, you know, I remember standing in a lot of keynotes and trying to help people understand, I'm trying to save you time and energy. I'm trying to help you as a small business or a single business or a private business owner understand how to use the thing that you have is that is the most value to you, your time. And so when you go into one of these spaces, there's nothing on that table that has your name on it. There's nothing on that table that is sitting in a pile for you to pick and choose and walk away with. Every business owner, every business has to look at how they're going to uh, build their, their products, how they're going to service their industry, how you're going to service your industry. And so for a person to walk in and think, because I am tall or short, because I'm white or black, because I'm this or that, there's something that is designated for me, that is absolutely not true. What is designated for you is the opportunity to present yourself, present your wares, present your talent, present your skill, present your knowledge. And what is designated for you is the responsibility of the source selection team to take your information into consideration as much as every other piece of information they have and then make a decision that is right for that circumstance, taking into consideration you want to do business with a diverse group of suppliers. Now, I know I said that a lot less uh, sternly than I've said it on stage sometimes. But it, it, it's so helpful. Um, and when you take that, um, take that further, it's not just about business owners. It's about individuals in life, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And I'll use myself as an example. Um, you know, I spent a lot of years going to law school after work, five days a week after I worked an eight hour day and then came back home, took care of my son, did my work, law school work is not easy, graduated from law school. Now, the company that I worked for, they had a policy for lawyers. They didn't hire lawyers from the school that I went to. They hired lawyers from the top five schools in the country and they hired the top of the class from those top five schools in the country. The person that ran the law department at the time was an African-American and a friend of mine. And when I talked to him, he said, we can bring you into the law department as a paralegal. 
that would have been a tremendous cut in pay for me. Now, what would it have looked like for me to go to, I was friends with the vice president of administration, vice president of human resources. I was quasi on first name basis with the CEO of the company at the time. What would I have looked like going to them saying, wait a minute, I should get a job as a lawyer because I've done this and I've worked for this company so many years. I have that's not their progress. That's not their policy. That's not their process. Why would I think I should usurp their process? My job for me, my individual responsibility is to look at what does that mean for me? How can I take that learning, use it to my advantage in the environment that I am in? And I'll tell you something, your decision to that actually helped to change that type of policy in many companies by you taking your voice and doing your work in supplier development community, especially diverse supplier development communities, you've got, well, let me just fast forward. Within the last few weeks, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson stepped up and said, we're rethinking how we hire. And not only are we going to hire from non-traditional top schools, we're also going to be hiring from community colleges as well. Yes. And so there has become an opportunity for people wherever they're educated from to educate toward the yes. outcomes that we're able to have as communities, as businesses, and as a world. And it's work that you and others like you did that has helped CEOs to come to this mindset. That's the big D and I, the big diversity and inclusion, because it's the diversity of thought. So again, not knocking any of the top schools and you know, you're very close to one of the top schools in the country, but not knocking those schools. There is a thinking that comes with going to a smaller school. There's a thinking that comes with being from a, dis a different discipline. And before I left the space, there was a lot more cross-functional training, cross-professional working, someone going from an engineering field to an administrative field, someone going from a legal field to a finance field, someone going from finance you know, to other areas. And why? Because those people that were trained in this particular kind of thinking bring that thinking to the other table. And that allows the people that are sitting around the table that pretty much think alike to have someone very intelligent, equally intelligent as them, but in a different area, interject things into the conversation that are different than they would have inserted themselves, but are very important. And I'm so glad you say that because not only where we can readily see that being true in uh, service industries, in commodity industries and product industries is true as well. I think about my sister, Trish, who you know, and uh, Trish is an engineer. Um, and I remember when she worked at a big engineering company that had one of its larger facilities near where we grew up. Um, she knew the community is the point I'm making of the people who work the line right. in that uh, company. Right. They, 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 um, 
they produced the big engines, okay? Mm -hmm. And she knew the people who were working the, the conveyor lines in that company. And I remember her having a conversation she called me about that the company was going to hire these firms to come in and help them redesign those lines. They'd had several accidents. And she said she questioned them. She asked them, why are you bringing these people in exclusively? Why aren't we talking to the people who work these lines? Why don't we find out what's happening for them? Don't you think they'll share candid and real information? After all, it's their relatives and friends who you know, sustained and some not sustained right. these injuries. And they thought that was novel, but for Trish, it was common sense. And I remember that's the first time we ever had that conversation about common sense not being common anymore. Um, and they brought folk in. And from there, they started to use those uh, local teams and people from the community right. to help influence so much of what they did as a business that made them a better company, right. that uh, lessened risk uh, to the business, and that helped them to think about how they um, developed an evolved product. So, yeah, and all of this is seeded back from your decision to they're in this place at Hughes about how they hire lawyers, but I know I can make a difference and grow from where I'm planted here. And you did that, not just for Hughes, but for a lot of other companies who then started to bring you in as an expert and as a leader to them and to their organizations and their supplier communities. Well, I have to say, I am very grateful to Hughes slash Raytheon for um, the environment that they created uh, that I was able to grow up in. Now, it wasn't always easy, but uh, it was a gentle fight. You could have that fight and there were people around that uh, respected you and allowed you to have that fight, and you could all you could win a lot of those a lot of those fights, and um, when diversity and inclusion really started to take off more in the 80s and and certainly way more in the 90s, there were a lot of people positioned, and many of them you know personally, in the industry that were willing to help take up that banner. They had the foot soldiers like myself that were willing to do the grunt work and you know try to bring all the things to the table, like you said, the people on the line, are we listening to people? It's one thing to be over here talking about all these great things, but are they great if the people that they impact don't think it's great? How, you know, there's a, there, my, one of my favorite sayings when I, before I left the space was uh, the golden rule, treat people the way you wanna be treated. Well, you know, that's not the golden rule. We, we shouldn't be looking at the golden rule. It's the platinum rule, treat people the way they want to be treated. Everybody doesn't want to be treated like you, but there is a caveat to treat people the way they want to be treated. The caveat is, how do you know how they want to be treated? You know, you have to ask. You have and to. And you care. did work in culture, right? Well, see, well, part of the part of the company's diversity and inclusion team, uh, I was one of the members of that team as a, a part of his uh, the person that was the. Um, lead for that for our company, I was a member of his team and, and it allowed me to get the classic DNI training and background. I did have a, a level two cultural competency certification before I left. But these are things that, like you said, common sense isn't so common anymore. We would be surprised in terms of the things that uh, you think you're taught when you're growing up, that you carry over into your work life but they get watered down in your work life because we have all just joined the march. 
politically correct or trying to get ahead or whatever it is, we've put these core, core, core values aside and we haven't learned to lead with them and make them our guiding principle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my son and I were talking yesterday about a culture of not just inclusion, but also a culture that supports uh, people to grow and to thrive. Um, my same sister, Trish, had a scholarship to a large university in our state, as did I. I left after a week, went home, asked my dad's permission to leave the school and go to A&T. I wanted to be at uh, North Carolina A&T. And we got there, you know that story. But my sister Trish, these many years after me, experienced something that was very similar. And it said in my heart that she was still having that experience after the years I had left. And she said, you know, they worked really hard to recruit me into the school. Once I got there, I found nothing that would support me matriculating through. And I think we have to think about that, whether we are hiring into companies or whether we're simply saying we welcome people into our space, into our community, and then we don't have the interest, the knowledge, and the and the ability to learn about them in a way, to your point, that gives them the platinum rule of engagement. Right. Right. Well, I know that and I've lived that for so many years. Um, I'm going to say this, part of my com comment is going to be a bit of a defense and part of it is going to be what I hope will be educational. And we can certainly have another podcast and talk about this for a long period of time. There are two things that happen there. And, and I bring these comments up from working in that space diligently, going out to the recruiting events, the many big events, I could give you some labels and you know exactly who they are and where they are and when they take place. And they're very legitimate, very sincere. And all the companies that show up there are very sincere. There's a difference between wanting to do something and knowing how to do something. And then there's a difference between knowing how to do something and feeling how to do something. So let's start with wanting. They all want um, diversity. They all want a diverse workforce. They all want to bring top talent from many different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds uh, on, onto their teams. When they're successful, they have to get a job done. So there's the work, the work that has to be done every day. And so you bring this person into, and I'll use a very simple graphic. Let's say, we all want to teach every, we all want everybody of different cultures and ethnicities to learn how to swim. We go out and we get a bunch of young folks, all different backgrounds, and we bring them to the pool. Now you can all swim in the pool together. Get in. It isn't that they can't all swim to some degree. They don't all have the same uh, capacity to swim. And the pool is very different from the pools from which they came. The environment is very different. And so they're not all going to perform the same way at the same time. Now, do you just put them all in the pool at the very beginning and expect them all to swim back and forth to 20 laps that you want? Or do you have someone there that's watching how 
the different swimmers progress and say, wait a minute, this one needs a little more help. This one may need to understand, you know, the difference between this rope and that rope. This one may need this. That's where the deficiency is inside. It's interesting you mentioned swim. Please hold that thought. It's interesting you mentioned swim, dear sister, because I have to tell you, I've confessed uh, with some element of uh, poignancy that I never learned to swim. Now, every home I have has a swimming pool. I never learned to swim. But you talk about culture. When we were kids, that's exactly what happened. We had a black swimming pool and a white swimming pool on the other side of town. And we were all taught to swim in a public environment if we chose, but we had to dive in that water. And as a little girl in the South, African-American, no, I probably was still colored then. Um, when they told you to jump in that pool, you got out and the truth of your roots would show. And my hair would shrivel up and my sister's hair would flow. And I did, jumped in that pool only once. I never went back to learn the strokes because I was so embarrassed when the kids started to laugh at my hair, the way it oh, had you shrivel bring up. up a good point. You bring up a good point. So it's not just my ability to swim, it's even my cultural readiness to face the environment under which I'm being taught to swim. That is the underlying point because it is not that you can't swim. There is something keeping your focus from being on swimming to something else. So if you bring these folks into a company out of a different environment and you put them in that environment, go off and perform, there is no real training and to some degree, not a tremendous, um, desire to understand what are the things that are keeping this talent from actually demonstrating the talent as opposed to uh, some of the shortcomings you see. Well, in some instances, it's going to be the way they speak, their accent. It, in other instances, well, it, it may be the way they eat. The, you, you know? Well, you're right on. Let's, let's, stick, let's stick with something that's easy, simpler, what you first said, the way they speak. Mm -hmm. Every company has a culture every company, departments in companies have cultures. I remember sitting in a finance meeting and um, yeah, I'm a reasonably intelligent person, but I have to tell you, there's at least a fourth of that conversation that was going on that I didn't have a clue what they were talking about because they were using very highly finance technical terms that I didn't have the total understanding. Now, in the old days, you wouldn't say, well, I don't understand what you're talking about because nobody's gonna divulge that you don't know what's going on. So I had to run out of those meetings and go look up all those things and write things down so that I could remember the next time I came back, I had a better understanding. What is wrong with the culture that says, well, let me just back up. We need to create, to, to, to your son's point, a culture of nurturing and support. We need to create a culture inside companies that gives people permission to declare they're not understanding, they're not ready, they don't, and help them because if you clarify something in that moment, right there in that moment, two things are gonna happen. You're gonna transfer knowledge immediately and you're gonna demonstrate support and you're gonna give people permission to divulge that they don't know what's going on. Can you imagine how much money and time and energy would be saved if companies performed in that manner? 
Oh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. By the way, my son has committed that I will know how to swim before we're released from quarantine and COVID. Well, I was going to tell you, I'll come over and teach you how to swim. I know he can teach you too. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's who's teaching you. You know, I was going to, I was tell a joke when I was, when we were kids, my mom, six kids in the family, we used to go to a very large pool in Long Beach at the time they had this thing called the plunge when, um, the Long Beach Pike was there, old, old, old days. And the, the pool was divided. It had a very large regulation size, you know, Olympic size pool on one side. And then it had a smaller section that was roped off or bridged off an actual wall um, that was like for the little kids and maybe three feet or whatever. But my mother, she didn't stay over there with us. My mother was a great swimmer. And what she did is she showed us all how to swim, taught us the strokes and everything. And she said, you can come across the wall when you can swim back and forth across the, the lengthwise of the, of the pool. And whenever you're ready to come across, come and get me, show me that you can swim back and forth across and then I'll, you can go across the wall. So the way we got across the wall to get on the big side of the pool was to learn how to swim across and back without any help. And then we could go across and then she still didn't watch us on the other side because now we knew how to swim and she felt comfortable. And we didn't, we didn't uh, take away from her entertainment and joy with six kids. You wanna get away from us and go swim and enjoy yourself. <laughs> but we didn't take away from her because she had us in a safe environment and she made us demonstrate that we could be on the other side of that wall and she could still relax and enjoy herself. And, and, I don't know how to articulate to people what that underlying message was for me, but there was something very strong and very fundamental in that lesson when I was growing up. Mm, and I'm sure you've encountered that throughout life, probably placing yourself in that same circumstance or uh, demand for behavior. Well, I think it showed up in a way, we'll go back to my not so popular side it showed up in a way in my personality style and my leadership style. I had a number of uh, bosses back in the day when bosses were really bosses, you know, and they considered themselves bosses and they wanted you to treat them like bosses. I had a number of uh, bosses that would say, well, uh, you're, you're precocious. And we all know what that term is, particularly when men use that in relationship to women and particularly women that are subordinate to them. And my retort would be oftentimes, look, I don't say anything that I'm not completely sure of. Because that lesson going across that wall, it taught me that you can't get across that wall until you're absolutely sure you know what the hell you're talking about. You know what the hell you're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, that lesson transcended into a lot of aspects of my life later on. And it showed up in maybe what appeared to be a little, maybe a little cockiness, I don't know, I have to own some of that. But it was because that was the way I was raised with regard to more or less challenged in my family. Don't speak unless you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But they gave you walls with doors. Yes, when you go into the industry, that is exactly right. The walls then turn into doors. You're right. That's a great that's that's a great analogy because now, maybe psychologically, I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. Looking at all those doors as that wall, as that as that barrier in that pool between the little side and the big side of the pool. Mm -hmm. um, and Benita, you know, another thing that you've done, I think, 
by being the person you are, who really, to me, you are someone looking at life uh, and seeing the possibility of it in a way that disallows you to accept anything less than best effort. And I know that's been your constant loving reminder to me for the years you've known me. You've always praised when you thought I'd done well. You've also been very quick to remind me when you think I can do better or do you wanna give a different thought to this or even to be an agent or a defender when you think others aren't seeing it the right way. When you think about someone like you, who, as I mentioned in our introduction, uh, has achieved so much by giving so much, um, why do you think it was you? We talk about people being deigned for certain things, people being born with talents or gifts, or even people who break down walls and create their own. What's the essence of your story about why you've been able to achieve so much and be happy and in a place of, of peace and, and, and calm about it? You've gone through a lot in your life you've not talked about. You yeah, know. that's true. I appreciate the accolades and I appreciate um, a feeling that I've accomplished and given much. And I think the thing that makes me comfortable and, and the, the reason I can say why me is because I don't, I don't look at myself as a person that has accomplished that much or has given that much. Wow. I look, I look at myself as a person that has, a, like I said, I go back to that middle child. Um, there's a part of me that wants everybody to be happy. <laughs> There's a part of me that wants everybody to have whatever they, whatever they want, knowing that you can't, all, everyone can't have everything they want. But looking at myself as whatever role can I play as a catalyst to make what you want come true for you. You and the big vernacular you. You personally, as we have shared our journey together as much as possible, and I don't really think I've been able to contribute as much to you as I wish I had of over the years. I've, I feel I've benefited a lot more from you than you ever have from me and your friendship and your knowledge and just, you know, sucking and siphoning the knowledge from you every chance I get. But I do look at myself as from the big picture, we've, we've shared this, we won't, I won't go into the spirituality part of it, but, but I'll just touch on from the bigger picture what am, what am I doing here? You know, I'm sucking in oxygen and breathing out carbon monoxide and taking up space on the earth. And, and how do you account for your existence? What have you contributed for the rationale for you being here and the rest of your journey here? What do you leave behind you in, in, in your wake? Um, you know, I've suffered tremendous loss in my life, but even in suffering that loss, it was a lesson for me because uh, it, it let me know that that giving energy, that particular person was no longer there for me to give to, but that doesn't mean stop giving. Even in the other- Wow, level, wait, wait, that's huge. That particular person may be no longer there for me to give to, but that doesn't mean I stop giving. Wow. Wow, Benita. Okay, please, yeah, continue. I just really needed to pause on that point. Yeah, and that was something that was very, very 
clear to me uh, after I, while, while I was struggling over her loss. And then, you know, most recently I lost another very dear friend. You know, we both share that. Yes. But I mean, that's very painful. That's only a few years ago. And what that person gave to me, the love, and I, I'll just even mention her name because of the big industry that we're in, the WeBank and stuff. But, but Cheryl Sneed was a, like a sister to me that, you know, in every way. And an engineer that when we talked about uh, bringing intelligent thinking, a person that reinvented herself several times and reinvented her business and just- And was, gave light and love to all members of- Light and love to and other everyone she encountered, everyone she encountered. And, and, and I felt small in her, in her presence. I felt like you haven't, I haven't scratched the surface on what I can and should be giving in her presence. And I, and, and I feel the same way in your presence. And so I don't feel I have anything to relish or wallow in because I don't feel that accomplished. I feel that I, I was blessed to be put on a path that could allow me to give in an area where I had the capacity to give. My mother has said before, those who give so much often feel so small. And, you know, I was reading today, one of my, um, one of my um, readings for today, and it says this, the quality of your life depends on your attitude and the way in which you approach and play and plan your life. It says you'll find numerous examples of people who've seemingly useless, unimportant lives and yet they were transformed into inspired disciples. Now, Benita, you just basically described yourself, but in that context, maybe the defining difference is that attitude, whether it was instilled or honed by your mom and dad, throwing you into the business and expecting you to create an outcome that all of your family and your community depended on thriving, or whether it was your mom throwing you in the pool on the other side of the wall and you had to learn to swim to survive and thrive. Um, at some point it was your attitude, wasn't it? You know, I think that is the one thing that I can look back on is the work that I've done on myself and continue to do on myself is the attitude because not even scratching the surface on the things that I've encountered and experienced in my life, it is and it had been so easy to um, lick your wounds, mm -hmm. you know, feel sorry for yourself. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'll just go back to this great loss in my life. I actually had to create a plan to survive that loss in my life. And people look at me a little bit strange when I say that, but I tell them, look, you know, you have to plan for how you want to go forward. And I created a plan. And part of my plan was don't feel bad about feeling bad. Give mm -hmm. myself permission to feel bad. Give myself permission to grieve. Um, but I There's had an athlete who's promoting uh, mental wellness saying I had to admit I needed help before I could continue to live, let alone thrive. Right. You may have seen that commercial. Exactly. Well, I, I know for a fact that I've lived that commercial and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and part of living that commercial is, and we can talk about this in another podcast too, because a lot of people like to talk about 
you know, mental illness, illness, and they think mental illness is something that everybody puts a label on, or you have to display certain signs. We have to understand as human beings, we all, all, all of us have some degree and a potential for mental illness. The issue is what kind of mental illness at what time and how do we recognize it and how do we deal with it? So I tell people, don't be concerned about whether you have a mental illness or not. Be more concerned about what are the signs that make you feel like this isn't healthy and then give yourself something to do to get yourself out of that or move yourself through that, which is how and why I created a plan for myself to get through my horrible, horrible years of grieving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, I see so many people who without using the terminology mental illness do speak to having gone through stuff or somebody helped them out of somewhere. I think that now we are all, no matter where you are on planet earth, thrown into an awareness that you are vulnerable and your attitude and your willingness to face that vulnerability are key to your survival and your thriving through it. Um, And this then I believe gives us, Benita, a huge opportunity for a transparency that maybe we feared before. After all, we all saw eight minutes and 43 seconds to, on, on, on our screens, no matter what screen we were looking at. We've all experienced ourselves, neighbors, family members, or somebody important in our community having financial failure, harm, or fear over these last few months, uh, wherever you look, we see the impact that we've all been sent back home and into ourselves. And I do think this is an opportunity for us to not just look at the social ills out there, the financial ills out there and the emotional ills out there, but to look in here as well. And where there's strength, grow from it. And where there's weakness, allow somebody to plant a seed to help us to grow. I think it's a moment for transparency that can help us all. Yes, I agree. I think you're absolutely right with regard to the moment that we're in. Transparency is a great place to start. I also want to take us back to your point about attitude. Mm -hmm. Because accepting the fact that we're all vulnerable in some area. Some, we have some degree of vulnerability in our lives. And so the transparency is the first part, acknowledging it and not being afraid to acknowledge it. The second part of it is the, the attitude, the outlook that we have. Do we allow ourselves to be paralyzed or imprisoned by those vulnerabilities? Or do we accept them for what they are and understand um, how we can move forward notwithstanding those vulnerabilities. There's a piece of work uh, that I shared with a friend of mine way back when. It's, um, it's a book on a, kind of a, an early book for motivation, but also uh, training. It's called Strength Builders. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that series. But basically, it's a piece of work that uh, talks about 
changing the circumstance that we have in the country for education. Everybody has to get an A in everything, you know, or you're not acceptable, or you're less if you don't have an A in everything. You go through school and you have to get all A's. When whoever said that was the, the right way to go, this particular philosophy is strength builders is understand where your strength is and work like hell to get it as strong and better as it possibly can be. Understand where your weaknesses are and work like hell to get people around you that have those capacity to do those kinds of things to support you so that you can lead with your strength and you have a supporting cast that those your weaknesses are someone else's strength. We don't seem to be able to digest that, absorb that and live our lives personally, uh, in our work environment or in our societal environment. If we could embrace that thought, we could have what I think we ultimately all want is some kind of harmonious existence where everybody gets to do their best. I love that. I so love that. I remember being really struck by the consciousness of different types of intelligence when the discussion was around for me, um, the intelligence of a particular prize fighter, a fighter. And um, there was laughter in the room referring to this person as being intelligent. And my brother, again, Carlton, who you know, said, wait a minute, you got to stop and think about it. When do we need an intelligence and how do we define intelligence? Because this guy, I won't call his name, this guy, if he comes up on you or if somebody comes up on you and he's with you, whose intelligence are you going to depend on to survive in the hustle and bustle of that fight? His agility and his intelligence around motion and strength or yours, you know, it depends, it depends on what you need. Right. Right. When you define how intelligent you are and let's face it, there are certain circumstances in which my intelligence will not lend me the best outcome. Right. Right. And you know, this conversation takes us really all the way back to the very beginning of the conversation to theater. We're all, we're talking about the supporting cast. So in any play, any given play, let's say you've got a handful of stars, those folks that are out in front of the camera all the time and, and, and the, the whole scene is built around them. People know them, they come to see them, that's where the money's gonna be paid, all of that. Transpose that on top of any industry. Nobody that we've ever paid a ticket to go see would be where they are or do what they do without a great supporting cast. And oh, wow. Oh, wow. Benita, listen. Um, so I pulled out, you were talking earlier about back when we had CDs and DVDs. I pulled out an old DVD called a uh, set called Queenie that stars Kirk Douglas, right? And um, I'm watching it. And it sent me to, I always go back now and I Google stuff about what I'm watching, right? And I was Googling uh, like makeup of the 1920s. Call me dumb, intelligence. I didn't realize that they painted these people white and then used black as the, you know, contrasting for those black and white film to right. give them a more natural and dramatic look. Um, I also to your point about the cast, everybody needing that cast because they're those people we see out front, but it's the people behind who make the stars. Um, and 
they describe one that this guy named Lucien, who was a big player in her life, in her theater, uh, developed a screen that they put in uh, front of her. And they put the screen in front of her and it enabled her to um, be able to look beautiful the way we came, became accustomed to seeing people look. Then later, she had an accident. I'm trying to remember her name now. It's not Myrna Loy. Maybe somebody will Google it and let us know the name, okay, of the, of the actual movie star it's referencing. But, um, but they, she had an accident and it was camera work and angle and doctor's work through their, uh, through their surgery that enabled her to continue to be a front and leading star. And I hate this senior moment that's not allowing me to know her name. So I'm gonna Google it while you go with that. Yeah, since I, so I think that's a very important piece in terms of one, you, you, we've now come full circle back to two things, the theater and also emerging technology. Because a lot of people, when you look at black and white television, uh, people didn't pay attention to really what was going on in black and white television because you just have this basic contrast, black and white. And so there's there's not a lot going on, or at least it doesn't appear to be a lot going on to the naked eye. Color mm -hmm. television created a different kind of exposure for that because again, my father being in that business, we as a family were one of the first families in our neighborhood to have a color television. But that if you remember color television in, the, in those days, the color hues were very limited. They weren't natural colors, which you actually saw. Mm -hmm. It was just how much blue and green and how did they contrast these colors to give you a colorized film. So and her name was Merle Oberon and they called it the OB. Yes. That film there they you used, go. that so, little peak technology. And, and so that does. So, so I'm gonna use that point to fast forward us to today's point and fast forward us to a comment that we made about how deep the deserving piece where we are today in this pandemic shines a humongous light for me on a message that i tried to deliver the entire time i was in the diversity and inclusion space one has to continuously look at reinventing themselves their product their service based on the environment if you look at that particular person back then, there was a lot of money that film studio invested in that person. And so in order to not lose their money, because I hate to say it, it wasn't that they cared that much about her. Right. Not to lose their money, they had to come up with something that allowed them to continue to use that star. And they invented something that allowed them to continue to use that particular star. And everything that has been invented from that time, even up to today, has been invented for a particular purpose. Someone saw a need or a tremendous benefit by having something that didn't exist and they found a way to create it. You look at where we are right now, all stuck in our houses behind our computers for the most part. How many new computer games have you seen? Designer masks things that you can do when you do venture out, uh, things that make you feel comfortable and like there's something for you to do while you're confined in your, in your little small bubble. All of these things are things that were created out of necessity. 
but somebody had to think of them. Somebody had to say, well, this is a great opportunity for me to do this. The space you're in, the space that I love and am committed to, minority business, women business, diversity and inclusion, that is the catalyst. Not how much business is any one company or another company or one industry or another industry going to give you or me. How do I every day wake up and figure out how do I reinvent myself? How do I reinvent my business? How do I move my business and myself from point A to point B, D, all the way to Z? And you could only do it by doing what we've talked about here, paying attention to the environment we're in, looking for the white space, looking for the black space, looking for the gaps. The, the opportunity is in the gap. Amen. Woo! Well, I guess that brings us to four for four, Benita. <laughs> Here's how we do this. I'm going to ask you four questions, and to each question, you're going to give me four answers. <laughs> your answers have to come with explanations as to why they're your answers. And from there, we gain further opportunity to benefit from your teaching. Ooh. And we have a lot of fun. First question, <laughs> you get to invite anybody to dinner you want. Oh my From God. From any point in history or present, who's at your table and why? Oh my God, the most dreaded <laughs> question on the planet. Jeez, that's almost impossible. Well, um, I will have two dinners. <laughs> I'm going to have to have two dinners, but I'll tell you what, they're going to be, it's going to be all over the map. And I will have to say, this is by no means would be the exclusive people. I'll just start. I would have to start with, with a Jesus Christ and the Jesus Christ from the standpoint of a human being that lived a life on this planet in a time when there was such turmoil and was able to walk the planet and live the life that was that was lived. To understand that, to understand the emotion, to understand the control, to understand the love, what does that look like and feel like? How do you communicate that to someone that experience? That person would be one. Um, you know, it gets a little hard there for me after that because I'm starting to when I when I think of the the people that they all start to look and feel so so different and and the reasons why. But I'll tell you this: the person that I just recently lost, I, I would have Cheryl come back to dinner for me, and stare in my eyes and give me that warmth, that feeling that I had of nurturing and remind me of you know, what I'm trying to do. We call it the Cheryl Sneed effect. Mm -hmm. Help me, help energize me and give me that feeling of what that Cheryl Sneed effect, you know, really is, really was. How do I, how do I hold on to that and, and get that back in my life? And I was, I have always been enamored with Barack Obama. Um, what he did what he lived through, how he got through that particular experience in his life, what he brought to the table when he got there, what he's taken away from the table in, in his absence, 
from that space just to pick his brain and to understand him because it, it, was, the, it was the complete picture. Uh, an educated person, a husband, a father, a country leader, a world leader, and to understand some of the mistakes. And you know, if you could do it all over again, what would you do different? So just that kind of thing. The last one is going to be a, a left hook for you. Um, I am, as you know, a big, big, big giant Tiger Woods fan. And you know, my passion is golf. And to be able to sit across the table and help hear about his life, his ups, his down, his upbringing, the, tr the tremendous challenge he had in his life with his um, spiral down and where he is struggling to get back up um, and understand what that means and still my passion for golf and pick his brains on golf. So, you know, some of it is maybe on the more shallow side for people looking at it. Some of it is maybe on the more enlightened side. But this you know, is your dinner. Baby. I, 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 I think that would be uh, that would be a great dinner for me. <laughs> you know what? As I sit here and I listen to you, actually, those people at your table will likely enjoy each other a lot. Yes. They'll enjoy each other a lot. Thank you. I'm going to serve at your dinner so I can enjoy it. Um, and uh, so we got one for four. Let's go two for four. All right. What are you listening to right now and why? Ooh. Now I'm gonna... thinking music. I'm thinking music. I, okay, but I think you're going to be, now you're going to make me come out of the closet on this well, one. Well, you told us that you, you listen to all genres with the exception of a couple with favor. Well, you know, I'm going to expose myself now because um, you know me, I don't lie to you. <laughs> right. So I have been on a bit of a artist and music genre journey this past COVID period uh -huh. started just a little bit before. So let's for let's let me just throw a couple of things out. My R and B, I'm never going to give up, and and I don't have a favorite artist. I mean, my R and B is it is what it is. It's in my bones. It runs in my veins. Classical music, I love. I'm never going to give up. I love the piano, and I'm still trying to play it. So I'm never going to give that up. But hardcore listening and research. Start off with a surprise for you. I stumbled onto uh, Neil Diamond's um, <gasps> Livingston Seagull uh, soundtrack. Oh my God, Neil Diamond. And so I started listening in a movie. The jazz singer. At my home in Venice on Venice Beach. Well, I tell you what, I started. He was one of my favorite. They're coming to America. Yes, yes. See, that was from the jazz singer. And that's what uh -huh. happened. Remember, I told you I do all this research. So what happened is I stumbled onto the soundtrack for Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And I started listening to it a lot. And then, of course, I started um, listening to his other songs. And then I read about his life. And then I downloaded more music. And then I read his biography. And I did all that. So, so I got, and then I felt very good with regard to how he came to where he came, the struggles he had in his life, his long-term marriage and his divorce. And now luckily he finally found a, a love of his life. He has Parkinson's now and he's off kind of in the sunset. But anyway, that was my Neil Diamond story. Then I got hooked on Leonard Cohen. And, you know, uh, I can't remember the song that got me hooked on him, but it's basically his anthem. You know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Right. So I, I, Look, I listened to that 
Then, of course, I did the whole Leonard Cohen research in his early days, you know, the fact that he was a writer, a poet, all the songs that he wrote, you know, all the way up until his death and that he performed and, you know, when he went to the monastery and all. And so terribly, terribly hooked on that, um, just terribly hooked on that. And my last music uh, research project was uh, David Bowie. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I got into David Bowie from I uh, can't remember the song that brought me to listening to him. But then, of course, I went all the way back to do the research on him, how he got started, all of his crazy days, his drug days, his purportedly bisexual days, you know, when he married Iman. Iman. You know, the per and, and what I learned about him was that uh, he was a tremendous advocate for black people from day one. Bingo. All of his life all of his life he put he took mtv to, to account in a big mm -hmm. public way all early on and uh just got very enamored with his life and his story so those were my latest uh, music research projects and so you collectively put your r b in there i'm sure your playlist is changing up all the time yeah my r b is because you know the old school r b i you just you know that's my life you just can't give it you can't give up on it and so you could throw up and remember i grew up in the music business so yeah. it's kind of hard to have that that one artist over the other um the newer artists um uh, you know although i'm a big alicia keys fan but mm -hmm. the not not so many not so much of the new stuff that gets a little um you know out there and graphic and and loses some mm -hmm. of the more of the rhythmic i like message music i love message music but I don't um, necessarily think it all has to be so graphic. And everybody's influenced by R&B. I mean, that's a gift uh, from America. Right. And, 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 and each of your three favorites, whether it's Leonard, Leonard Cohen, Neil Diamond, or David Bowie, they all gave homage to R&B. Right. So, oh, you well, know. actually, that David Bowie got started because of Little Richard. Yeah. He, he said that from day one. Yeah. And then Leonard Cohen, you know, but, but, but the thing about it is, the other thing is that, you know, my sister-in-law is Moroccan. And so I li listen to a, a, a lot of African music. Um, uh, that whole genre itself is very, very different. Um, I love ethnic music. I love world music. As you know, on our iPods, we can get yes. our Apple music. We can get music from anywhere around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, depending on how I'm feeling at a particular time, I'll just choose a country and I'll just listen to music from that particular country. So oh, I, I'm going to send you one young lady's name to listen to. She blew me away. I actually heard the song in one of the African movies because I've been going on Prime and on Netflix and looking at a lot of the African movies and the music behind them. A lot of it is very modern uh, mm -hmm. music that probably gets genre as R&B or hip hop. Uh, but with that very dynamic African flavor. So I've just been enjoying that. But you ain't, we've done two for four. Let's go three for four. <laughs> you already mentioned one book. Um, I don't know that it will be in the three for four, but what are the four books that you are reading that you recommend or have read that you mm -hmm. recommend to our family? We call our audience our family. Well, that one might be a little harder because since I've gotten um, locked into iPads and all that kind of stuff, I haven't really touched books very much. But I'll tell you, I just read uh, um, the Barack Obama book that just came out, uh, Promised Land. Um, mm -hmm. That is a must. 
and simply a must from a standpoint of where we are, you know, understanding backdrops and those kinds of things and, 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 and history, particularly the history that we've just lived through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, putting him up there as, as a person that I admire. Um, I have to tell you anything Maya Angelou did, I, I just can't get enough of it. I just pretty much sometimes just go onto my Kindle or my iPad books and just pop her name in and just pull up. I, I've read, I, I know by the page bird sings, I've read that numerous times That's, or jump to certain parts of it. Yeah, you know? there, there are certain things about that, you know, that, uh, that you, um, I read more for where, how I'm feeling in the moment and not yeah. just this moment, but a period. Like for instance, I mentioned these three artists. It's a, it's a time in my life where I have an insatiable interest for this right now. And that's the way I read as well. Mm -hmm. um, a, a number of the books that I do pick up and read are, are kind of like um, self-help books kind mm -hmm. of things. Um, there's a book, I don't, I know I'm gonna get this messed up, but it's called The Courage to be Disliked. Um, that's a that's a good book for me because it it basically and I can't pull the author's name right off the top of my head but I like books that um, create situations for me to think about myself where I I'll am Google while here. you talk about it I'll get you the author yeah okay. I was gonna say if I, I may may have a, I think it's called yeah it's called the courage to be disliked um, okay I was looking to see if I had it. Uh, if I had it somewhere where I could put my eyes on it quickly, but, but that's a, you know, those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. I, I'm a person that likes to unravel things. And uh, one of the things I like to unravel is myself. Is Ikiro Kishimi? <laughs> I think that is him. Yes. And yes. Fumitaki Koga. Yes. Yes. A Japanese uh, yes. philosophy to it. Yes. Yes. And, and you, and, and basically, Sometimes we find um, we don't really, the motivation behind what we do or think isn't what we thought it was at the time. You know, my, my, my stepfather used to say, it seemed like the thing to do at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. In any moment, we, we try to do what seems like the thing to do at the time. But when we give ourselves some separation in time, sometimes we'll go back and we'll look at something and we'll go, I will. I don't really feel that way. <laughs> you know, why did I do that? That's not really the way I feel about things. And when I encounter one of those situations, now I find myself having to do the work on, well, what was making me feel like that at that time to make me feel like that was the thing to do? That's the unraveling that I'm talking about. And um, let me see, what's what another uh, other book can I give you? Well, you know, I'll, I'll have to just tell you. Whenever I'm whenever I'm at a loss for something, I nothing is more comforting than just picking up the Bible and going to some passages and finding something in there, or the Quran, finding something. My family is Muslim and finding something in there. I think wherever you are somebody on the planet before you has said something about it in a spiritual way that if you can't find the words yourself myself to 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 i won't say solve my problem 
but to guide me, then those are books that I want to pick up and say, what did somebody else have to say about that? Or how, how was that addressed in some very long period and totally detached from what I'm feeling right now, but still relevant? Wow. Wow, Benita. Thank you. Ooh. Okay, I know folks are going to be rushing too. Um, last, four for four. Oh. Now you have you have shared so much in our conversation, and I just love you so much for that and for so many other reasons. Can hardly wait to hug you up. Um, share with us the four pieces of advice that you want our family to take from your conversation that you think matter most. Wow. And why, and yeah, why? Maybe yeah. it's advice someone has given you or maybe it's advice you've, you've truly curated on your own. Well, I'll start with advice number one, which is what we spend a little time on. And that is, well, I'll, I'll start with something else. First, start with, yourself. Love yourself. Explore yourself. Know yourself. Research yourself. Do your own homework on what makes you tick. It is very hard to survive in the outer world with all the other energy and, and conflict and noise going on in the outer world if you're not really grounded in yourself. And that's not something that is automatic. That requires work and, and do the work. Don't be afraid to do the work. The second one is care about other people. Care about how other people feel. Look at yourself as a catalyst, a catalyst for creating an environment for another person that they may not be able to create for themselves. And give that, give that joyously, give it freely, give it without wanting anything in return. The freedom and the love and the energy that you will get from doing that, you can't put an amount to it, you can't put words to it. So that's important. The third piece would be, don't be afraid to fail. Failure is going to happen. You can't be the best at everything all the time. You just have to be willing to take a risk and um, be willing to accept the responsibility and be accountable for what happens when you take the risk. Don't let fear stop you from uh, going out there on a limb and um, trying something. If you don't try, you know, failure may not be what's going to happen, but if you don't try, um, nothing will happen for sure. So, <laughs> and the last piece is just going to sound so, you know, pie in the sky and philosophical, but, you know, just figure out what it takes to just have unconditional love in your heart. <sighs> unconditional love in your heart. As a, as a fuel for yourself to live your life, um, 
there's there's nothing there's no amount of money there's no material there's no companionship nothing can replace the ability to just live your life and walk through this journey with unconditional love in your heart when i think dear dear beautiful woman about the four pieces of advice you're giving our family right now if citizens of the world followed that advice, <laughs> so much of what we are we've got going on right now that's bad. Yeah. Would yeah. be gone. This badness that's going on right now is just it's devastating. And it just it's a matter of sick hearts. Sick hearts. Just people need to look at. How do you heal? Well, your, your first piece of advice about really, I mean, Socrates said it, right? Know thyself. And you said, do that work, get up under, understand why you are, not just right. who you right. are. Right. Um, just, just that would be such a stimulus to the right. change we need in people's hearts and heads. Right. Hearts and heads. Right. That conversation between the heart and the head for a lot of people gets loud and rowdy or or your heart quiet. the heart and the head matter because the 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 unconditional love can't take place without that first piece of knowing yourself and doing the work on yourself. That's the head part. You've got to understand what makes you tick with you know, I was remember saying to, to my daughter years ago, what are you thinking? You have to control your thoughts because your thoughts don't stop just because you're not aware of them. So they're running rampant. So you have to get a handle on what you're thinking. And, and then when you realize what you're thinking, you can control what you think. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking things that are not good for you, not healthy for you, not healthy for society, make yourself think something else. One of my favorite books of all time is actually a little pamphlet, and it was written in a <laughs> in a very gender specific way as a man thinking. And I loved it so much, I got the rights to rewrite it into as a person thinking. And there's a poem in it, and that poem in part says, "We think in secret, and it comes to pass. Environment is but our looking glass." Mm. Yes. We are the evolution of every thought we've ever had, mm -hmm. you know? Yes, yes. I can't think of a better way to have invested my time than with you. I look forward to it again. I heard in there the promise of two more podcasts, <laughs> which we are definitely going to get. Whether we're podcasting or whether we're just casting time forward. Girl, I love you so much and I'm so and, grateful and, for And I love you, as you know that. Thank you for the invite. It's so great to get a chance to spend this much time. I hope somebody somewhere gets a little something out of this because <laughs> I, what I got out of it was a great chance to spend an hour and a half with you. So love you so much. I love you from my heart to your home, boo. <laughs> All right, darling. Thank you. Okay. Take care.